And it was so many misconceptions that I had built up in my mind that just weren't so that once we started doing it, I was like, I could have been retired 20 years ago with cash flow. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I want to introduce to you Ash Patel. He's a full-time commercial real estate investor. He's going to be doing the interview today and a lot of them moving forward. I'm still going to be doing interviews, just not as many. And he is going to ask tough questions while still building rapport. That way it's not awkward. He's a good friend of mine. Join me in welcoming Ash Patel. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm here today with our guest, Jason Moss. Jason is joining us from Santon Valley, Arizona. He's a real estate broker, a home builder, a developer, and an appraiser. He's got 20 plus years of real estate investing experience, and his portfolio consists of 160 rental units and 120 flips and wholesales. Jason, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. It's fun. Good. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. I started out as a real estate appraiser in Las Vegas. I got the foundation for what things are worth and just start to get familiar with the real estate industry. I actually did my first house hack back then. That's how I got started. And went from there. I just loved investing, invested in stuff while I was doing my nine to five appraisal job. Not nine to five. It was more than that, but did a lot of investing, got a lot of creative financing deals going and then worked my way up and got wiped out in the crash and came back and got back into real estate investing. And here I am now. What year did you start appraising in Vegas? This was in 2001. Okay. So you saw the rise of that crazy market out there and Vegas was insane. The yeah. prices just went through the roof. And is that what prompted you to get in on the other side of real estate, on the investing side, when you saw those property values rise? No, I have an uncle. He lives in Utah and he's a developer. Ever since I was 14, I was like, I want to be a developer. You know, I thought that was so cool, but it's not as easy to become a developer as I thought. So I just always loved real estate. And as soon as I got my appraisal license, I wanted to buy a house. I bought a house and yeah, I saw the values going up. So that was definitely a part of it. But I was also in the Utah market, the Arizona market, and the Montana market at that time. As an appraiser or an investor? Yeah. Well, not the Montana market, but I had my appraisal license in Arizona. This is a couple of years later, like 2002, 2003. Okay. It took a couple of years to get my license. But then I immediately got my license in Arizona and Utah. And I had interns running around. That was a great gig back then. You could have interns and they were just churning as fast as we could do the appraisals they were doing. So that was great, great income boost for me. And yeah, I would be driving. 200 miles every other day doing these loops around the valley. And Ron Legrand was my first real estate training course that I took. It was like 500 bucks. I went to one of those high pressure seminars and you go to there, come to the back and order the thing, you know? So I bought it, it was 500 bucks and 40 hours worth of audios and DVDs and stuff. And I just listened to those things and just consumed them, loved the idea. And I was in the industry. So I started to see these deals and at a certain point I had the knowledge. I just couldn't not do it. I just had to get past that fear and finally do my first deal and never look back. And what year was the first deal? Well, I don't really count my first house hack because I had to have somewhere to live. But then I bought one in, I think it was 2002 when I bought my first wrap deal, subject to. What's a wrap deal? A wrap deal is where there's a mortgage in place and somebody needs to sell their house for whatever reason. And I come in, I'm going to take over that mortgage, 
this is how I did this particular deal anyway. I went over and took over this lady's mortgage. She needed to move for whatever reason. She still owed like $80,000 on the house. I came in and I took over her payments. I didn't assume the responsibility for the loan, but I took over her payments and she deeded me the property. So I own the property. She went ahead and basically left and I paid her whatever down payment she wanted. I can't remember what it was at the time. And I took that over. And so what I did is then I resold it to somebody else on a seller finance. Was that essentially like buying a note? No, I wasn't really buying the note. I was taking over the borrower's position. The difference with selling a note or buying a note is you're taking over the bank's position. I was taking over the seller's position. And how do you come across a deal like that? Seems like a win. (laughs) They're actually easier to find, I find, than just straight across owner finance deals. And you probably know what those are. Those are pretty common. But the problem with owner finance deals is somebody has to own the house free and clear in order to do it. Otherwise, it gets tricky. And if they don't, then you can do a wrap too. That's the same type of scenario where if somebody owns a property free and clear and they want to sell it to you on terms... You can be like, okay, I'm going to pay you a thousand bucks a month for five years or whatever. Then you go out and you sell it to somebody else and you bump up the price, you bump up the interest rate, you bump up the down payment. And so you make a little bit on the down payment, you make a little bit monthly and you make a little bit on the back end. So it's kind of a wrap because you have this mortgage and then it's wrapped in a new mortgage that you've created on the outside of that. So you're ultimately responsible for the underlying mortgage, but the new buyer is paying for your mortgage. And so they call it a wrap because you're wrapping around that existing mortgage with another mortgage. Yeah, it makes sense. So you said they're easier to find than owner financing. How do you go about right, right, finding right. So owner finance, they have to own the house free and clear. So these sure. are often elderly people who've owned their house for 30 years. And a lot of times they don't have 30 years left in their life to want to do an owner finance deal. So they're going to want two or three years. So these other type of deals, what they're called subject to, they're easier to get because you can find people that are in a motivated situation where they may not care about their credit. Maybe they're already late on their mortgage. So you're going to come in, you're going to take over their mortgage, and you're actually going to fix their credit by coming in and actually making the payments on time and eventually cashing them out. But ultimately, they don't care because they're going to go into a rental. So they're easier to find in the fact that you're not just narrowed to older people with their house paid off or that young person that that was aggressive and, and is probably pretty darn savvy and probably isn't in a motivated situation. So it opens up the world to everybody with a mortgage to do this with. And it's not necessarily a wrap, but it's a subject to wrap is kind of what I'm specifically talking about. Got it. So you mentioned earlier that you got wiped out in 2008. We're still back in 2001 with this story. So bring me up to the 2008 mark. Tell me your deals that you've done, how you evolved. Yeah. So I was like that first house and I had my office in there and I had my room. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this other house and it worked great. I was super scared, but I did it. I made 20 to 30,000 bucks on that deal. And then I bought this other house and I house hacked that one. I actually moved into the master bedroom closet. I just had a bunch of buddies and I was never there because I was going from Arizona to Montana and all over the place. And so when I was there, I'd just sleep in the closet. I didn't need a whole lot. I grew up not necessarily poor, but I didn't really have a whole lot. And so I didn't need a whole lot and slept in the closet. And then I bought a house in Utah. I actually bought some land in Arizona and I actually flipped that for a hotel. Well, that was right after the crash. So that's a jump ahead of myself, but I did some flip deals. I didn't do any buy and holds at that time. I didn't really see the value in that. So I had amassed a million bucks by the time I was 26. And most of that was through real estate investing. I mean, I had a good wage as an appraiser. I probably made 150 to 200 as an appraiser. But when it came down to it, the investing is really how I was able to build my nest egg up to a million bucks. And all my buddies were buying 12 houses at a time. And then they would refinance them immediately and suck out all the equity and buy 12 more. So it was this race to see who could get too many houses. I knew this market was going to collapse. Me and a handful of buddies knew that this was going to collapse. And I was keeping my mortgages at 50%. I'm like, I got to be safe and smart about this because I know this is going to collapse. And 
I thought 50% would be a good number, but nobody expected what happened to happen. And I had a house that was 330,000 that ended up selling at auction for 90,000. So that's how hard we were hit. And these are in the fast growing areas. If you're in an established area or in the Midwest, you weren't hit that bad, but man, we got wiped out. I ended up $250,000 in the hole, negative. (laughs) So when 2008 hit, was that a personal bankruptcy moment? It's funny because most people say 2008, but it really happened in 2005 for me. What I mean by that is in the very fringe areas where the new developments were happening, that's when things first stopped. And that stopped in mid-2005 is when the bell curve started to go. "Eh." And in 2008 is when it kind of started to go down the other side because people held out for a couple of years thinking, oh, the market's going to come back. And people weren't desperate at that time. But then the longer time goes by, then they start to get desperate. Then they start to foreclose on their houses. It took a couple of years for that to flush through. So this was in 2005. And by 2006, I had had that million bucks made. And I was like, okay, my buddy, we saw the drop coming and he dropped his house by 60 grand and he was the last person to sell on our street. So as an appraiser, I'm in the numbers and the stats every day. So I could kind of see this coming. And I was selling each house. I was like, oh man, the values are going down, down, down. I got to sell this one. I'm going to go upside down if I don't sell it. And so I would sell these properties as they were going down. And eventually there was no more to sell. And I ended up getting foreclosed on two houses. And I'll, I'll probably talk about that later, but one of them was down here in Arizona that we ended up living in for a minute. And then the other one was a property in Montana that I had. So I ended up 250,000 in the hole. My parents at the time had sucked out an equity line of credit and they were trying to help me save the empire. And so they borrowed me that money. So when I was 250 grand in the hole, I couldn't just file bankruptcy. So now I'm a negative 250 at the age of 27. And then what? That was the hardest time of my life. That was really rough. So what's the next move? I licked my wounds for a little bit. I still was an appraiser and I got my real estate license shortly after because I was always hustling deals. I never really stopped, but I tried to start a windshield company because that was my business in high school. I had a windshield repair company. I thought maybe I could resurrect that because real estate was just, there was no appraisals going on. There was no real estate sales. The only thing that was available was investor fix and flips and, and investor type deals. And those were everywhere and they were ridiculous, but I didn't have any money and I had no credit because I just got wiped out. So I was relegated to do these type of subject to deals that I was talking about where I didn't have any money. And I had several people that gave me their houses because they were going into foreclosure, but they owed right about what it was worth. And so I came in and I did my magic and actually made money on some of those, but those are few and far between. So I was looking for other ways to make money. So that's kind of how I kind of creeped and crawled back. And this is what I told you about the land I had in Arizona. I think it was 50,000 bucks and it didn't even have an easement. It was landlocked. So I negotiated with the neighbors. It was actually really easy. I thought it was going to have to pay him some money to get an easement to this property. But I ended up just talking to him. He's a good old boy. And he said, oh yeah, I'll give you an easement. No problem. Just let me sign the paperwork. So he gave me an easement. So I took that piece of land that I had and I took it to a guy that really wanted to sell his hotel up in Park City, Utah. I said, hey, I'll trade you this piece of land, which honestly was not worth a whole lot of that time because the market was crashing. And I was going to do a palm tree farm on this. I was going to get some water and I was going to grow palm trees for the next 25 years. And he ended up trading me the down payment on that hotel for the piece of land. And I took over his mortgage and did a subject too on that hotel while we flipped it. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. One of the hardest tasks to balance while scaling your real estate investing business is accounting. Well, realestateaccounting.co takes care of the numbers for you so you can grow your business and revenue. REA helps property managers and investors save time and money by automating back office, financial, admin, and accounting. Starting is quick and seamless, from accounts payable to reconciliations, taxes, and reporting. Go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever 
to find out how REA clients save on average 30% by leveraging their accounting services versus hiring in-house. With CPAs on staff and being owner-operators themselves, REA knows the challenges of your growing real estate business. Try it risk-free at realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. And remember to mention the Best Ever Podcast sent you to receive up to $1,800 towards onboarding and services. That's realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. All right, wait a minute. So if I want to buy something subject to, how do I go about doing that? The biggest thing is just to find a motivated seller. They're everywhere in any time. There's motivated sellers now. There's a forbearance wave. Forbearance with all the sure. foreclosures and the COVID. There's this pent up pool of people. I don't think it's as big as everyone's saying it is, or I don't think it'll flush out that way. But anyway, there's this pool of people that are not in a good position right now. And if you can find those people, whether that's knocking on doors, notice the default lists, or however you find them, if you can get in front of them, nine times out of 10, if you can get past those initial smoke screens that they throw up, they're going to tell you, hey, I'm in the spot. I can't pay my mortgage. Maybe I'm upside down by 10 grand, or I just can't pay my mortgage or whatever. I don't have enough to pay a realtor to get out. And those are the ones you're looking for. And you can get in and basically, if you give them a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, they'll just give you your house and walk away because that's what they're doing anyway. The bank's taking it back. So if you can step in and save them and we've come in with five, 10, 15, $20,000 in back payments for people and we'll reinstate their mortgage to be like, Hey, we're days away from foreclosure. Here's 20 grand. Let's get this thing back rolling. And we work with the bank to resurrect the deal. And then we do our magic with it and then sell on the backside. And the banks don't require you to own some part of the debt. If they knew, <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, in every note and mortgage since 19, I think it's 87, there's a due on sale clause or a alienation clause is what it's called. And basically that says that if you transfer the mortgage to somebody, we can call the loan due. So some people think this is illegal and it's weird, but it's not. It's not illegal, but it's against the terms of the original contract. So if the bank found out that this deed transferred, which they don't, but they don't even care when they do because all they care about is getting paid. But if they found out, they do have the legal action to go ahead and foreclose on that property and call everything due. And in that event, I would have to scramble and figure out a way to pay that bank off so I could keep the property and protect my assets. But ultimately, we've had plenty of lenders find out about this. And the only couple of times where it's been an issue, and I've talked to title companies and they'll back me up on this, it's usually when there's an equity line of credit. So it's something that the owner can go and draw money on. That's going to be a big red flag because they don't want me drawing an equity line of credit on something. And I wouldn't want that either. So I don't even buy properties that have equity line of credits or I make sure that the owner goes and closes that out and can't be reopened. That or possibly an FHA deal. I've done plenty of FHAs and have never had a problem, but I've heard of it being an issue with some FHA deals. And Jason, do you run a title search to make sure that you know about all the loans that are out there? Yeah, I've got a pretty good relationship with my title company. I'll give them a call and be like, hey, is there anything crazy on this deal that I'm not seeing here? Because I'm just seeing a first mortgage or this is what I'm taking over. And I'm okay. I've never had any kind of weird IRS lien come in after the fact. But if there's nothing recorded as of the date that they deed it to me, I'm not too worried about it. Because I'll be like, hey, whoever this new lender is, they don't own the property more. It's mine. So you need to remove this lien and they'll do it. So 2008 hit. And you now traded a worthless piece of land for a hotel. Tell me about the hotel. Well, in Reno. I just got married four months before. We were living in Utah doing this flip, newly married. My wife got a full ride scholarship to the college there. And this is a bad idea. Don't do this. Don't get married and then live in a fix and flip. But we did. And then we moved from that fix and flip into this hotel. It was a 15 room hotel, but basically it's like doing 15 flips at a time. 
my wife calls it the dark ages on our marriage because we couldn't leave because we had daily people coming in and out for the hotel. We didn't have a manager yet. We're dealing with drug people. We're trying to get everybody out of this property. We're trying to clean it up and we're doing 15 rehabs at the same time. So there wasn't a lot of date nights or anything like that. So it was a little rough during that time, but that's kind of what we did. We flipped that hotel and then we moved to Arizona and we've been here ever since, since 2007. How long did it take to flip the hotel? It wasn't too long. I think it was about a year, year and a half. Okay, so that was a year and a half of you guys playing front desk, playing maid, playing rehab, doing it all. Not exactly. We bounced after about six months. We're like, this okay. is not going to work. So we got a manager to come in and take over the day-to-day, even though they called me up one night and they're like, we're leaving. I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. We'll work it out over the next couple of weeks. And they're like, no, no, we're leaving right now. Like right now, they were leaving. So I got in my car and I drove eight hours or 12 hours up to Utah, had to break into my own hotel so I could be there in the morning when people woke up and started to check out of their rooms. So we had a couple of managers and we finally ended up selling it to a guy on owner finance. And so it worked out in the end. It was just stressful. And what was the amount of profit on that hotel? Not a lot. Again, this is when everything was falling apart and I was happy. I think we made about 50 grand on that hotel, which wasn't a lot in hindsight. And I thought it would have done a lot better. And I think it would have if we could have held on to it, honestly. If we would have been a couple more years, we would have made it a lot of money because our, our finances would have been a lot better. But we had to get out of that situation. It just wasn't healthy for us. And then we couldn't manage it from out of state. We were just too naive in this hotel space. Now, if I were to do it again now, I think it'd, it'd be a whole different ball game. But we ended up selling it at that time and we were happy to be done with it. All right. So I'm assuming you didn't do any more hotels and you probably don't even want to stay in a hotel after all that. That was the motels, my wife's sore spot. But we're looking at them now just because they're in distress. And we're looking at the possibility of converting some of those into multifamily units and things like that. Because that's kind of a niche right now that uh, we're looking at. Okay, so back to the rebuilding phase. What are you doing? You're doing fix and flips right now to get back on your feet after you left the hotel? I was trying to do appraisals in Utah and I was trying to do fix and flips, but the market was just different up there. I wasn't doing near as many appraisals. And again, I guess what my point was, and telling you that I made about 50 grand, but I also paid $50,000 to my realtor to sell the thing. And I'm like, he didn't do any work. I did all the work. I basically found the guy. I even reviewed the contracts. I was like, I'm paying this guy 50 grand. And he spent probably a total of eight hours. I'm like, I'm getting my real estate license. So that was the catalyst for me getting my real estate license. So now I'm a broker and I'm an appraiser. So I've got a little more cloud under my belt. And right after that, we'd moved to Arizona. And so I started to build that up and I did that for a while. All right. The way you feel about realtors is how I feel about appraisers. When I do a commercial appraisal, I have to pay $2,000 for that. Okay. This may make you feel a little bit better. I don't even do appraisals right now because it's such a headache. There is a book, it's called the Use Path. It's Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice. And it's this book that changes every single year. And it's basically all the hoops that you have to jump through as an appraiser. All you see is the report that they send you at the end. It's like 46 pages. It looks like they put some work into it for sure. But you don't see all the work file that goes into and all these hoops you have to jump through as an appraiser. It's not worth even five, 600 bucks for me to do an appraisal right now. It's just a lot of work. I was never a great appraiser. I was always very good at getting values, but I wasn't great at like filling out that work file and doing all the things that the state wants me to do. So as an appraiser, there's a lot more work that goes into it than a realtor. Because I'm both now, I can see both sides. And if I list the house, it'll literally take me five or six hours from start to finish to get that deal done. Whereas an appraisal probably cost me the same amount, but I'm like, commercial appraisal is a different story, but a residential appraisal will take me four or five hours to do that. And I'm making four or 500 bucks versus a realtor, same amount of time. I'm going to get 15,000 bucks or something like that. 
All right. That makes me feel a lot better. Thanks for sharing that. So you saw how much money realtors are making. And in your case, for not a lot of work. So you got your realtor's license. Take me through that journey. I actually did pretty good at that. I would do about 50 to 70 a year, which I think is pretty good for a realtor. And I was doing appraisals as well at the same time. They married perfectly with each other because I could be out in the field and I'd do a loop and be typing my appraisals in it because it's hard to get constant flow of real estate deals and you're always out hustling. And sometimes you're just spinning your wheels trying to find that next deal where during that time I was actually appraising. So I actually made some of my best money during that time. And luckily I got on a panel for Fannie Mae which was really very eye-opening for me as an appraiser and as a realtor and as an investor. Because what they wanted us to do is they wanted to give them an as-is value. Remember, this is 2009, 2010, 2011. So Fannie Mae has this massive amount of properties and they don't know what to do with them. They're trying to sell them as fast as they can, but they're realizing that all these properties are nasty and all they can sell them to is investors. So they started to ask us appraisers and said, what would these properties be worth as-is And then also after we repaired, and of course, as an investor, we all know this, it's the ARV, right? And back at this time, no lender ever remodeled a house. It just didn't happen. If they got a property back, they would just do it. So we did this and they would start to see that if they put in a $3,000 granite countertop, it would bump the price by five to $10,000 and it would only cost them three. So they remodeled all their houses and I had this queue of 10 appraisals as fast as I could get them back to them. They would send me more. So I made hand over fist money during that time. And I was able to dig myself out of that. $250,000 hole that I dug myself in. And then I got my my little seed money. I needed about 40 grand to start investing more heavily again. Then I started into that again. Into the fix and flips. Right. I had also done one here or there, maybe two or three a year up in that time. So it wasn't a ton, but I was starting to get more money. And so I could do that more because that's where I'd get my chunks of money. I'd do a flip and get 30, 40 grand and do another one. I wish I could have bought a hundred houses right then. I just didn't have the capital. Yeah. That would have been great to go back in time and do that. So How did that evolve into your buying holds? So about 2017, I partnered up with a guy around that time and we started doing fix and flips. We were doing like six at a time and we were churning them out. It was a great time for buying properties at the auction. Now it's kind of got overrun with all the fix and flip shows and the auction shows. It's kind of got overrun and it was kind of crazy. But during that time, it was great to do fix and flips. We started to see those margins get less and less. And we wanted to make about minimum $20,000 on a flip because there was a Mina partner. So we're like, it's getting tighter and tighter. So why don't we try and hold one of these? And we had gone to a John Burley boot camp that was about lease options. And we're like, this is interesting. Let's give this a shot. What the heck? We didn't make a whole lot. We made like 50 bucks a month on the cash flow, our first deal. It was a small $80,000 house. It wasn't a big deal. We're like, that wasn't that hard to do. And we had, like I say, six or seven going at a given time. And I'm like, we convert all these to lease options. What would happen? And so we did. And we haven't flipped a house since because we end up making two to three times the amount we make on a lease option versus what we would have made on a flip. And if you do sell those houses, it'll be capital gains instead of ordinary income. That's part of it. We don't pay any realtor fees because we're selling it to the tenant that's owning it. We've got cash flow every month. We've got the mortgage pay down. We can sell it for a premium because it's a lease option and there's not enough of them. So people are willing to pay a premium on the price and a premium on the rent. And then the depreciation and the capital gains. There's so many things that two to three times is probably conservative really for what we make on a lease option. But the difference is with a flip, you get 20 grand right now versus a lease option. We get it spread over three years. But if I start stacking these up and me and my partner start to see the vision, we're like, we start to stack these up. Yeah, 50 grand a month isn't a whole lot. Now we're pushing 200 properties now. And we're like, this is looking pretty good. Play the long game. Yes. And that was our worst deal at 50 bucks. Now we try to target about 200 bucks a month cash flow on our properties. 
So right now your 160 rental units, is that all single families or is there multifamily in there as well? Did you say 160? Yes. I think when I filled out the form initially, that's what it was. We're pushing 200 now. Oh. Uh, but I think we have about 70 to 80. It's hard to keep track because the machine's kind of rolling forward. But I think we have about 70 to 80 single family homes. And most of those are on lease options. We have a chunk of those that are rentals. And then we have a good chunk of multifamily properties. And then we have six mobile home parks as well. On your lease options, what are some of the mistakes that you've made that you wish you could have corrected? Honestly, I wish I would have done it sooner. For the longest time, all the way up to about 2016, when my partner basically bent my arm into doing one. I just didn't want to be a landlord. I, was like, I don't want the calls on Christmas Eve having to fix the toilet. And it was so many misconceptions that I had built up in my mind that just weren't so that once we started doing it, I was like, I could have been retired 20 years ago with cash flow. And me and my partner argue all the time about net worth. I think net worth is dumb. He loves net worth. I'm all about cash flow. I care less about how much I'm worth on paper. I really want that cash flow. And so I wish I would have just started this sooner. Honestly, there hasn't been a whole lot of errors that we've made on these. We just had three people exercise their option because now we're three to four years into our lease. So people are starting to exercise these options. And one guy, he walked into $100,000 equity. For a lot of people, do you think they'll exercise the option or do you think they'll end up walking away because they can't get financed or they just don't want the house? Well, I don't think anyone will walk away because they don't like the house because the market's gone up so much. Like I said, the guy that just did, he walked into $100,000 equity. But historically and statistically, I think about 15% of the people exercise their lease option. So if somebody has one of your lease option houses and they're at the end of their lease period, but they can't finance the property, is there something that you would do to help them out or would you just start over again? We may reset the price, but we'll keep them in the property. If they still want to buy it, we may just reset the price or reset some of the terms or we can really do whatever we want. We've had people that have moved to Oregon and we're like, hey, here's your option feedback. We're okay. We'll take the property because the property's gone up by 30, 40 grand since then. So we're like, we'd be glad to take that back. But yeah, to answer your question, not all, not everyone's going to be able to do this. A lot of people will just procrastinate. We actually try to work with these people and try and get them to buy the house. We really want them to. Um, now it's kind of hard because they've got so much equity in them. We're like, we don't really care if they exercise it or not but we're not going to step in their way by any means. We're going to still help them. If they reach out to us and they want help, we'll help them. But Good. we'll see. We'll see how many shake out. Every single one of them may buy or they may not. And we're okay with that because we went in from the start knowing that say the house is worth 200,000, we would market it for 210. And we got $10,000 more than what it was worth at the time. So if we were to do a flip, we would have got way less. So we're happy either way. We could have structured that a little bit differently where we could have had some price increases and capitalized on some of that. But by not doing that, we've had great tenants. Our one office manager handles all of those 80 properties and she has a couple calls a month because these are buyer mentality, not tenant mentality. It's just a different mindset. So Jason, are these leases set up as a typical single family rental or are the tenants responsible for more such as HVAC, plumbing problems, drain backups? They are. It is a typical lease, but there's also an option agreement that sits alongside it. And the option agreement says, hey, you can buy it for this price. And here are your responsibilities. You take care of the property. Any minor repairs under 200 bucks, you take care of. Anything over that, we'll go ahead and take care of. We'll come in and replace an AC unit or a roof. We're just going to add that onto your option fee. So none of that capital expenses or reserve for replacements that people have to factor in, we don't really have to factor those into our matrix because we've kind of exited ourselves out of that. That's a great way to hedge against unexpected expenses. 
Yeah. So technically as a landlord, we have to do certain things. We have to replace their AC. We have to keep the have property safe and sound. So technically we are on the hook, but contractually they have motivation to keep the property nice and sure. because it's theirs. So you mentioned earlier, you were trying to do subject to with hotels. Have you had any luck or have you approached any hoteliers? Well, right now we're looking at that as a strategy. Right. No, we're not looking at necessarily subject to as a strategy for that. We're just looking at buying hotels. You said you probably would never touch a hotel. And I said, well, I may now because yeah. that's a good niche. Now, I'd love a subject too, but those are probably a little different. That's a commercial mortgage. They may call that due. I've never wrapped or done a subject to on a commercial mortgage, but I'd be willing to try it. But no, we're just looking at hotels in general. As like Some of these mom and pop motels you see outside of town will come and we'll buy them, rehab them, make them into a little six unit apartment complex and then operate it that way versus a hotel. What kind of systems do you have in place to keep your machine turning and burning? We use some software. The one we're using currently is called Buildium. So I find the property. So I'm kind of the real estate aspect of our team. I'm the real estate guy. My partner is the financial guy. So he'll go out and he'll get all the money. He'll get all the loans and things like that. So I'll find a property or he'll find a property and be like, Hey, what about this one? I'll do the value. As soon as that's done, we basically just send an email out to everybody that's involved. We, our title company, our insurance guy, my office manager, his office manager, everybody gets looped in and then everyone knows their part and they just go do it. That's kind of the acquisition side. And then as far as the management side, like I say, for these lease options, which is a good chunk of our portfolio, they don't take a lot of maintenance or month to month management, but the mobile home parks, that's kind of a, a beast unto itself. And, and those do take a little more that's where the building comes in and the systems, those kind of automatic pays and the automatic deposits and things like that, that we encourage our tenants to do. And we actually incentivize them to do that really make things work smoothly, but the lease options kind of take care of themselves really. Yeah. We covered a lot. I think we're going to have to do another episode and dive into the mobile home parks. Jason, what's your best ever real estate investing advice? Just do your first deal. If you haven't done a deal, do your first deal. That's it. And don't be scared of buying holds just get started. Because if I were to convince myself years before that, this has all happened within the last four years, right? So it's 2001, 2017 is when we started and we've got over 200 properties. We could both probably retire right now and have residual income until these properties are gone. So I would have rather done that when I started. And four years later, I could be in a totally different position now. So that's my advice. That's great advice. Jason, are you ready for the lightning round? Sure. First, a quick word from our partners. Mark your calendars for the Best Ever Conference, February 24th through 26th, back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group of eight to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at BEC2022.com. That's BEC2022.com. Jason, what's the best book you recently read? Atomic Habits was really, really cool for me. But I think Slight Edge kind of filled in the gap. So those two combined, there's the Slight Edge and Atomic Habits kind of go hand in hand. They're not even by the same author, but they kind of were circling around the same thing. What's your takeaway from those books? Just a way to set up habits and to push through and to keep things moving. Awesome. Jason, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Right now, I'm trying my hand at YouTube, trying to share my knowledge best I can. And I'm also looking to start up a nonprofit as soon as this 
cash flow machine ramps up all the way, we're going to be breaking off a piece of that income and, and doing a nonprofit with that. I'm not sure what we're going to do yet, but it'll be fun. I'm sure. I'm sure it will be fun. Jason, what's the best ever way that our best ever listeners can reach out to you? Probably YouTube. I watch those comments like a hawk. Real Estate Getting Started is the channel and you might have to add my name on there, Jason Moss or LinkedIn, but that's probably a less effective way, but uh, you can still reach me there. Wonderful. Jason, thank you for being on the show today. You've shared some great advice and you've taken us on your journey with you, the rise up until 2008 and then how you got back on your feet after that downfall. So great advice with the lease options. I learned a lot about the wrap around mortgages. Thank you again. Have a best ever day. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. This is a blast.